Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. This weekend is the time for a very special and unique tradition for Inuit people in a handful of communities in eastern Canada. It involves a visit from cultural beings called Naluyaks. They have scary faces and carry menacing staffs. They give treats to children and adults who are good, but they chase and hit those who are bad with their staffs. Naluyuk Night closes out the holiday season and sets the community on the right path for the year. We'll learn more after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Advocates and tribal leaders working to address violence in Alaska Native communities say support systems and lifting taboos are needed in order to help people heal. Leanne Gubatayo is a survivor of domestic violence. She says she found a safe place and support when her parents brought her home to Juneau. As I learned about trying to recognize that domestic violence was a part of my family and try to heal that, I was able to do that in my homeland with my parents and, and with a, a women's shelter that really helped teach me. Gubatayo talks openly about her journey to help others, saying it's not something to ignore or hide. Speaking our truth, telling our stories, but to have the community really acknowledge that our women have suffered and that they need all of us to gather and to heal, right? Because what we want to do is we want to break the silence, to break the cycle, so that the next generations don't have this same um, level of trauma that we have. But we want to teach them um, how to have healthy coping skills, how to reach out to people and, and get the support that you need. It may be hard for Alaska Native communities to confront some of these tough issues, but Clinket and Haida President Chahleish Richard Peterson says it's needed. When you talk about domestic violence, when you talk about murder to missing Indigenous women and people, that through line of trauma is there. And it's hard to have to admit some of these things. It's hard to have these conversations. Peterson says he's working to make sure people have the support they need for a successful journey. When we talk about healing, I'm going to stand up and say these things. I'm going to stand up and say the things that scare me. It's really hard to pull these things out of the dark and put them in the light. But I'm going to hold myself accountable and I'm going to hold others accountable. You know, heal, healing's a journey. And it's like any journey, it's usually better walked with others. This story is a partnership with FNX Television with support by the Public Welfare Foundation. The Common Council in Kenosha, Wisconsin, okayed an agreement with the Menominee Nation, helping the tribe with its goal of building a casino and entertainment complex in the city. Chuck Kornbach of Station WUWM reports. Common Council members voted 11 to 6 in favor of the intergovernmental agreement. Alderperson Daniel Prozanski Jr. says the millions of dollars per year in gaming revenue that the Menominee would eventually pay the city of Kenosha would help fund things local residents want. Better police presence. And we do want a safety building or we do want access to better advanced medical EMS. And this is a way, a way, not the way, a way 
to help offset some of those costs. Opponents question the Menominee's plan to partner with Hard Rock International, owned by the Seminole Tribe of Florida, to also have a hotel, music venue, and restaurants at the casino site. There was concern about Hard Rock maybe pulling out of the project. But Joey Awanape, who chairs the Menominee Kenosha Gaming Authority, says Hard Rock remains very committed to the relationship. We took a trip down to the Seminole Tribe uh, a year ago and uh, we re-strengthened that commitment with the Seminole Tribe and with Hard Rock International. If the Kenosha County Board okays the Menominee's plan this month, Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers and the Interior Department would still have to approve. I'm Chuck Kornbach. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, LLP, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for over 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Tomorrow night, the Naliuit will come out from the icy white darkness of Inuit villages in Labrador and Newfoundland in a traditional celebration that's equally terrifying and wholesome. The Naliuit are clad in furs with faces that'll give you nightmares. They carry sticks, antlers, and harpoons and chase those they think have been bad during the year. They also bring treats to Inuit children who have been good and sing a song. An award-winning documentary short film, Naluyuk Night, gives viewers a first-hand view of festivities. Today we'll visit with the Inuk filmmaker and another community member about the tradition. As always, you can join our conversation. Does your community maintain traditional New Year or holiday events? Give us a call at one 800 996 28 Later in this hour, we'll also hear about a sighting of a rare white raven in Anchorage, Alaska. The bird carries cultural significance to Alaska Natives. Again, the number to reach us is 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us now from Happy Valley Goose Bay in Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada, is Sharon Edmonds. She's from Makovic, born and raised on the northern coast of Labrador. She's a nook. Hello, Sharon. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Uh, Happy New Year. Um, I'm really glad to be here today. Happy New Year to you as well, Sharon. From St. John's in Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada, is Jenny Williams. She's a filmmaker and a photographer. She's a nook. Thanks for joining us too, Jenny. Hi. Nice to be Hi. here. Great to have you. Great to have you. Sharon, I want to begin with you. Now, Luyuk Night is tomorrow. What are you doing to prepare? 
Oh, um, there's not a whole lot to prepare. You just got to, uh, it's a very, very exciting event. It's so much fun. It's so scary. What you have to do basically is make sure you dress up warm in really warm clothing uh, because it depends on the temperature. It's an outside event. And you just go attend the event wherever uh, it's being held in the community or wherever it starts in the community. And you just go from there. You follow the Nanayuit. If they go visiting houses, you, you kind of follow them around town. Uh, so they will go in to visit people's houses. And uh, if not, they'll um, you'll have a lot of fun with them outside. They may chase you and, and try to hit at your feet with their uh, with their sticks or their chains or whatever it is they have. Um, so it's just a whole lot of fun. We gave a short description of the Nanayuits earlier. Can you tell us more about them, how they look, and how exactly they interact with residents, especially the children? Yeah, um, they're... Um, the the Nalioit is the plural, and Nalioka is the singular. Um, they are dressed in traditional Inuit furs and hides, and they carry a lot of the, you know, the hunting tools and stuff with them. Uh, they may have on, you know, a deerskin coat or a sealskin coat or a big uh, dicky, we call it a winter coat. They'll have masks. They might have furs draped over their shoulders and sealskin boots on, fur mitts, and they might be carrying a big stick. It might have uh, deer's horns on it, or it might just be a, a big long stick. Um, um, and uh, you just got to be ready to run because these guys, they chase after you, and they can run fast, and they <laughs> are really scary and really fun all at the same time. Okay, now the children, because um, you know what, down here in New Mexico, some of the Pueblo communities, we have some similar type of of ceremonies. And um, I'm just curious, the children themselves, I mean, um, are, are some of them really frightened or do they understand oh that it's there's more to it than just fear? Oh, my gosh, yes. It's, it can be terrifying. Um, and for that reason... Um, because years ago, the Nalioit would come into the community. They, or, they'd come in off the ice. Um, uh, and Jenny's film, by the way, does an incredible depiction of, of the Inuit, of the Nalioit uh, arriving into the community, coming across the ice, sort of like arriving from the east, like the old, the wise men, the story of the wise men. And uh, so they will run after you, and they could hit you. And there was a time... Uh, period in the 80s, 90s and stuff where they were getting pretty rough with people. They were, I know, I remember one guy in Maine had to be sent out to the hospital. He had a broken leg or something. And I don't know what the situation was, but they'll run after you and they'll, um, if you're, uh, especially if they know you, you've been not so good all year, they'll kind of um, hit at you and stuff like that Uh, and if you have been good then they'll they'll reward you with candy if you sing to them so um, in order to um, address some of that issue especially in Maine they have an event where you can actually meet and greet them in a very um, um, 
calm setting, still outside, where the members of the Inuit Brass Band play um, uh, Christmas hymns. And um, they can interact with the little children who are frightened of them in a non-threatening manner for the little people. Mm -hmm. And they can also, um, you know, they'll go around shaking hands. And once that event is over, that's when the all the action begins. Okay, Sharon, I want to ask you more about the origins of this tradition, but I also want to ask you, so um, this naughty and nice list that they apparently have, I mean, how do they, what constitutes a bad behavior that would invoke some type of punishment uh, during this uh, well, event? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a difficult one to call because it will, in small communities, everybody kind of knows everybody anyway. Um, so, um, you know, if, if the Nalu, and they will come into your houses, I should tell you, um, <clears throat> Nalu, we, uh, visit people's homes and they go from house to house and they go in inside and the little people, the children and the elders and a lot of family members will be in the house when the Nalyuk arrive, they'll come in, they'll kind of sit on the floor and, and they, they would ask like, have you been good? You know, and they looked at it, and the children would say, "Oh yes, yes, we've been good," and then they will give them some candy. But they got to sing to them. Often it's um, a song in Inuktitut, Sarutsi. Uh, but any song that you sing, that then you will kind of be rewarded. Um, and then outside, that's when they—it's the older kids then who are outside that the Nalio the Nalio we chase after. Um, so that's uh, that's uh, more uh, for the the more grown up, older children, but it, it's kind of and it's 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 difficult to track track the uh, origin of the celebration. It's kind of a, a, a mixture and a, a a joining of the Christianity uh, that was brought to the Labrador by the Moravian missionaries. And partly some of the pre-Christian context, some of the, you know, the the clothing and the costumes and the, yeah, um, the way they arrive in the communities. That's uh, very much uh, the Inuit content of the celebration, and it it coincides with the twelfth night or the twelve days of Christmas. It's the Epiphany, and so it's the ending of the Christmas celebration. When I was growing up, it was incredible we couldn't wait to go out after supper we would go out and we would run around and you know follow them everywhere and by the time we got back home at, at, the, at the house in the evening all the christmas decorations were taken down and it was like it signified the ending of christmas the ending of the holiday season and and that merger mm -hmm. with, with uh some of the christian traditions as well as the indigenous customs, um, that's really fascinating as well. And Sharon, tell us more about the songs that the children sing. What are they like? Oh, <laughs> well, um, it's, um, you know, it's sort of like, uh, um, I should I should say, uh, and I've been trying to do a little bit of research myself and find out more about it. I found a great article. It's sort of like opposing um polar polar differences um you know good and bad uh the beginning the ending of the dark season 
growing into the late season, the season of the spring, that sort of thing. It's uh, bringing um, um, feast or famine, and 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 it's the Christianity and the kind of heathen customs and traditions, and um, heathen because that's actually the translation for the word nolio uh, is a is a um, the the proper word for it. But um, yeah, we have to. And uh, growing up in Hopedale, like we, I remember like standing outdoors, looking up into the face of this this figure that had furs and masks and who was so scary and then so intimidating. And we'd be crying and singing. And there was a song that we used to sing. Everybody learns it when we're kids because it's the song that you sing to the Nuluit. And it's Sarutsik. And now I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to sing it for you because I can't sing for peas. But <laughs> the first verse, even if you get the first verse, uh, then he'll shake your hand and and probably give you a few candy. Back in the um, in the, you know, I spoke to a friend of mine who's 75 years old now, and she grew up in uh, Hebron, and she said all her life she can remember them. And uh, in those days, they would go to different houses and they would bring things like dried fruit or bits of candy or dried bread. Like these were all little treats that you could get, but you had to you had to sing to them. And now you could sing happy birthday. They're happy with whatever you sing. But. <laughs> OK, we're going to have to take a short break. Uh, give us a call if you've got a comment or a question. 1-800-996-2848. You're listening to Native America Calling. Five young people with demonstrated leadership and service in their communities make up the new class of Champions for Change by the Center for Native American Youth. They're making a difference on issues like education, Native culture, research, and economic development. We'll introduce you to some of them on the next Native America Calling. Okay. Happy New Year! Look at everyone yayu patitonate canna, yayu yana itonanton exercise cananton you de chiates natonate canna. Yam tonakwa mossi yantekuna nanko lorteo natonate canata eastern health care takaf in awanoa. Look at centers for Medicare and Medicaid services donapena itulokanawe, elakwa. You're listening to Native America Calling, and we're focusing on a Labrador Inuit tradition in Canada where scary-looking cultural figures come into town to give gifts to good people and punish the bad. Does your culture include a similar tradition that encourages good behavior? Join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Our next guest, Jenny Williams, is a filmmaker and photographer. Jenny, thank you again for joining us. And we just heard Sharon give a, a wonderful uh, background on, on this tradition and uh, some of the origin as well. And uh, your film, Naluyuk Night, it offers a firsthand view of what happens during this time. Why was it important for you to capture the event on camera? So um, it's good to be here. Um, I've been documenting this tradition through photography for 12 years when I lived in Maine. 
and then um, so being doing exhibits across Canada and um, a lot of different places, I would show my black and white photography of the Nalewit and people would always have a lot of questions because it's a very rare and unique tradition and there's always so many questions and so little time during an exhibit to talk to each person and try to explain about what the night is and you know because it's um, hard to talk about in minutes so I, I thought like if I make a short film um, I'll be a lot of people will be able to see it and understand the whole thing. Um, the short it's a short film, 13 minutes. So um, I also did the film in black and white, and um, it's mostly visual. So the way that I did it is I wanted people to feel like they were there in in the night. So it's like the actual tradition that's happening at, on January 6th that that you see in the film. So. That's why I um, created the films because I wanted to show people more and so that they could understand better uh, through film. And what's been the feedback from viewers? What are they saying after they watch the film? A lot of people say I had no idea this was a tradition, and even a lot of people in the same province um, had had never heard of it before. And they find it really interesting and um, appreciate, like, a tradition being captured that way um, so that they could learn about it. And also, like, I've been to a lot of film festivals, um, not just in Canada, but, like, internationally. And people, some people I meet have similar traditions. And, like, there's one in Greenland and there's other ones in uh, Germany and other parts of the world. So... Sometimes I get people coming up to me and saying, like, oh, my goodness, like, I didn't know that there was something like this in even Canada. And then uh, me hearing about their tradition. And so that's really amazing, too. Yeah, it really is how different Indigenous cultures can share some very similar uh, traditions and, and practices. Jenny, have you received any any negative pushback? Like, hey, why did you put this on camera? This isn't something that should be put on camera? Or is everybody comfortable with it being out there made public? No, I haven't received any negative thing about it. It's like, people sometimes wonder, like, why, why are they the kids or whatever? <laughs> but, like, there's a reason behind it. You know, it's not... I, I always explain it that it's like, you know, it's part of the tradition and, you know, they that's a way to keep uh, the kids in line and um, it's like a fun, you know, thing that, and parents can use it throughout the year saying, you know, you got to be good because January 6th, the uh, Nelly Weed are coming and it's going to be, you know, be good all year. You got to be respectful and helpful and stuff like that. So it's scary, but it's also good. You know, both. Yeah, some of that old school indigenous <laughs> discipline. I think it works for sure. Yes. But Jenny, while watching the film, I mean, there's one scene where it looks like one of the figures is threatening to hit the cameraman. I mean, what's it like to be chased like that on, while you're trying to make a film? Um, yes, I did put that in there because I wanted to, another reason I wanted people to feel like they were there. Like um, the stuff that happened in the film was like the real thing. So January, the film was uh, done on January 6th in Maine. So like what you see on there is actually like the real thing that's happening. So um, I just went along as I did every other year and captured the things that I thought were, you know, the, 
the most important parts of the the night and um and then put it all together and in order like as it happens so um and I feel like people have made comments that it does feel like that like and then that's what I was hoping that would happen so I was really I'm really glad to hear people say like yes it does feel like you're you're actually there like running around with them you know absolutely now what are some of your earliest memories as a younger person and, and just experiencing the figures and and the whole evening well the first time um i experienced it in maine i remember going into it was an old community hall so it's not even open anymore but it's kind of small so like um the four of them would be in chairs in the front so um they were like the scariest ones of the night usually the ones that are uh in the beginning part in the chairs like they're they're really uh you know intense looking scary ones and so they were in there and then the small community hall was just packed solid with community members coming in to greet them and and i it's my first time seeing them so they would they came in through the front door and they were walking through the crowd like and shaking hands and like making their way to the chairs and um that whole experience of just the community being together and um and mr playing his music and just this you know the look on everyone's faces like scared and happy and just um a celebration of being together it was just amazing to me and then seeing the tradition still going so strong after you know after so many years seeing um seeing that happen was it just I wanted to know so much about it. As soon as I was there that night, I, you know, stayed through the whole thing, and I, and I went out for the chase later. It was just uh, I was drawn to it immediately that first time, and then I wanted to, um, I'd do interviews, and so I did interviews with um, kids and children, teenagers, adults, elders, like every age group that I can think of. Um, over the years, I've done tons of interviews with people to get stories about their experiences before doing this film. And um, every year, I did uh, a different thing for photography. So, like, one year, I would just follow the children and then get, like, the children's perspective when I'm taking the pictures. And then next, the next year, I would get the perspective of a Naliuk. So I would come in off the ice with one. I would follow that same one all night and, like, take pictures of, like, that, that perspective. And, like, you know, I'd do a different thing the next year. So it's 12 years of doing photos of different parts of the night. And then after that, I, um, the 12th year, I put together this film right here. Okay, and that's really... Yeah, it's really comprehensive that you have so many years worth of, of content there to share in the film. There's a still photo of Analyuk on our website, and there's also a link to Jenny's film, Analyuk Night, if you'd like to check that out, NativeAmericaCalling.com. Sharon, I want to bring you back into the conversation, and let's talk a little bit about uh, relocation and, and assimilation of of your people up there uh in that part of canada and how has that affected the tradition at all ah that's a great question thanks for asking um there was um the practice of nalyuk night was only something that happened 
in the most northerly Inuit communities, or uh, Hebron more specifically, um, it was never practiced up in the more southern communities, you know, of uh, Hope Del Postal and Kovic Roulette, um, or even Happy Valley Goose Bay. But when the uh, Inuit from northern Labrador were forced to relocate um, with uh, the um, relocation of the communities of Hebron, Nutak, Okak in the late 50s, where uh, the, the churches actually closed down uh, the, the communities and forced people to ro- relocate in more southern southerly communities, the customs uh, that that particular tradition was actually brought to places like Makovic and Hopedale by the people who were relocated. So um, it wasn't practiced. Even um, a friend of mine, Sophie Keelan, was telling me uh, that it was it wasn't even practiced in. Uh, Kilinik, which is the northern tip of Labrador, it was more around the the Torngat uh, mountains area, and so the tradition only started in Makovi. and And these are this is a tradition uh, mostly by the Moravians, and the Moravian the because of the influence of the Moravian Church in Nain, Hopedale, Makovic. Um, and now we have a one of the an activity in Happy Valley Goose Bay, so the people who were relocated actually brought it. My grandmother said as well, and she she died a year ago, a little over a year ago. She was 105, and she said there was never a Nalyuk night in Makovic until the Moravian uh, until the people from north arrived and were uh, relocated to the community of Makovic. And they they picked up and they practiced the tradition, and so that's how it continued on in the in Nain, Hopedale, and Makovic, and in Goose Bay now, um, because there are so many Inuit who have um, moved to Goose Bay. Goose Bay is central Labrador, and it's a much much larger town. But there are so many uh, Inuit from Nain, Hopedale, Makovic living in Goose Bay, and so um, we. Uh, people felt that it would be great to have that custom uh, continue here. It was started a few years ago, a number of years ago, and it was held inside. And it would be like in the Legion, where there would be 100. Uh, I, I remember at one point there was 225 people in the Legion. And the Naliwi would come in and shake hands and give out candy. We bagged off candy and we served soups and chocolate and cookies and stuff like that to people while they were waiting for them. But they were more dressed more like mummers than anything. And mummers is is like a Newfoundland tradition. Um, Very different. They didn't have most of the uh, authentic costumes uh, or their their traditional clothing of the Nullioweep. So we actually worked with a guy from Nain. We hired him and he, he consulted with us. Uh, we ordered proper clothing. We ordered hides and skins from, you know, animal furs. And he made the sticks and he made masks. And he done uh, a lesson for the the three people. And we always chose three people, just like in Makovic. 
is sort of like reflective of the three wise men who had arrived from the uh, east to um, visit, you know, baby Jesus on, on his birthday. That, that, and that right. would have been December, uh, January 6th. Okay. But uh, sure. he taught them how to chase and move people and run around and where to hit them and not hit them. Okay. <laughs> this is just all really fascinating. And Sharon, you mentioned uh, the Moravian missionaries uh, who came from parts of Germany and the Czech Republic. Uh, tell us more about how they wound up there in places like this in Newfoundland and Labrador in Eastern Canada. A little bit of that history, please. Well, it's really interesting because the Moravians actually were, uh, in the beginning, they were interested in Christianizing uh, the heathen, so to speak. Uh, but they were also very much involved in the fur trade, and that's one of the things that brought them to the uh, north coast. They migrated. They were they showed up in uh, uh, the, the Moravian churches is a spinoff from one of the churches in, in Europe. It was created by Count Zinzendorf. And um, so... He, this 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 religion, this newfound religion, was actually started to migrate, and, and, and the Moravians actually showed up in Greenland, I think, before they arrived in Labrador, and we're just neighbors anyway, next to each other. But they, um, um, oh my, I lost track of the of the uh, the question I was trying to answer. How did I was they just arrive? asking you? You know, about about the history of uh, the Moravian missionaries. And so this area there, Goose Bay, Happy Valley, I mean, today, how, how remote are your communities and how uh, isolated are you from other parts of Canada? Is it, is it very distant, very isolated, or are you pretty dialed in? Very. Yeah, we're very isolated from, uh, distant from uh, communities. Um, the Moravians showed up in Nain, Hopedale, Makovic. Uh, those were the primary uh, communities in, up in Okak, Nutat, Hebron. And um, then they became very involved in converting um, people to Christianity. And they used that as a, a sort of a, uh, in, in the, in the as, as Jenny mentioned before, um, we see um, images and, and practices in Europe, in Germany, and, and in Greenland of uh, Naliui, which coincides with the kind of like the arrival of the Moravian missionaries. But they, um, <clears throat> they forced uh, relocated people from those communities, Hebron, Okak, and Nutak, to the more southerly communities of um, Maine, Hopedale, Postville, Makovic, Riglet, and even Northwest River, and in Happy Valley, Goose Bay now. The smaller communities, you can only get there by plane in winter or snowmobile, and they, they're they much smaller. Like, Nain would be probably around 1,300, 1,400, maybe. Makovic is, you know, dancing around 400 people. Other communities are 300. Hopedale is around 600, 700. You can only get there by boat in summer. Um, it's actually cheaper for us for me to fly from Goose Bay to Europe to go on a vacation, a European vacation um, across a pond than it is for me to fly to Maine. Really? It's so expensive. It's so expensive. Uh, if I bought my own ticket, it would cost me over $1,000 just 
to fly to Maine, which is, okay. yeah. Yeah, geez. Really, really interesting, Sharon. And Jenny as well. Really appreciate you both joining us today and uh, sharing some of this wonderful history and this tradition. And um, we don't carry a whole lot of topics and issues from uh, Eastern Canada on our show. So it's wonderful to get this perspective today and learn more about your people and uh, this wonderful interaction that we're learning about. And I sure would like to encourage anybody listening to our show today, if uh, you have a similar type of tradition in your community and you're comfortable, that's the question also, if you're comfortable sharing that information on our show, give us a call and we'll put you on the air. 1-800-99-NATIVE is our number here at the studio. 1-800-99-NATIVE. Give us a call. Support by the Intertribal Agriculture Council. Have you or someone you know experienced discrimination in USDA lending programs before January 1, 2021? The USDA Discrimination Financial Assistance Program, DFAP, is a limited one-time program to provide financial support to ranchers, farmers, and forest landowners discriminated against by USDA lending programs. Interested producers must apply by January 13th. More info and application assistance at indianag.org. This is Native America Calling, Nauluk Night in parts of Eastern Canada. That's our focus today on Native America Calling. And there's still time to join us if you call right now, 1-800-996-2848. Let's take a caller right now. Chanupa, listening in Pine Ridge, South Dakota on Keeley. Hello, Chanupa. Chanupa, are you there? People that are coming on your show, I wanted to share something. Many years ago, a, fair, uh, a brother of mine named Ferlin, he was from the Inuit and some of those Simpson brothers and sisters up there in uh, Canada and Alaska way. And they invited me over there. And um, one of the things when they welcome new changes of seasons, their women beat this drum that was very thin, like a hand drum like we Lakotas out here we have. But they beat it with their palm of their hand when they greeted the change as they welcomed the new year. And these women sang with them. And, brother, let me tell you, and the, the lady and whoever else is on the show probably can relate to this. They would make a, a, a voice tone like go, they would go like this, <laughs> like that, according with their dream. And that's how they greeted the change of the new year and welcome of season. My brother, Ferlian, who was, you know, a Simpson introduced me to some of their, their food that they ate over there. And that's where I ate that that piece of a whale. I think it was whale blubber. They called muktuk. And then some pickled salmon. Man, those people got their culture down, and I love them. And, <laughs> you know, that is, yeah, that is the most beautiful thing that my brother Ferland did and invited me over there. But like I was telling, you know, many other people, when you're invited to different cultures, in our culture, we got to give them the same thing. So I showed them how we took the sap from trees and we made our aroma, which we still do here in Pine Ridge. We still pick cedar sap and we smudge it when we can't um, find sage or we didn't harvest sage through the spring and summer. So for the people that are tuned in to, you know, do about the welcoming of New Year's, Wopila Kanka Echichiapinaha, 
Sean Nishan, that's a Wopila Tonka to you for always having subjects like this that people can relate to. And thank you, brothers and sisters of the Inuits and Simpsons from up there in the northern part of Alaska and Juneau for inviting Chinupa up there. Wopila to all of you. Let's all welcome our New Year's with a happy sensation of love and honor. Hokahe, thank you from Pine Ridge. All right. Happy New Year, Chanupa. Really appreciate that call. And uh, Sharon, I want to ask you, because Chanupa talks about some of the indigenous foods uh, up in, in the Arctic and subarctic region. And are there any special dishes or meals that coincide uh, Naluk Day or Naluk Night? Excuse me. Uh, no, not particularly. We, uh, Inuit, as Inuit, uh, uh, you know, the caribou. Um, was a, a staple in our diet, and we uh, we have uh, we can't harvest that anymore because of uh, the herd has just uh, de, de, you know the numbers have gone down so dramatically. Uh, we actually, <clears throat> if we want caribou now, we we actually import reindeer from over in. Uh, uh, the Nordic countries, but we can't we can't hunt it, and it, it's 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 very difficult for us because uh, it it's it's it means so much to be able to eat the caribou frozen or cooked or however you want to have it. It's so it, it's part of we mm-hmm. identify who we are with it. It's a part of our culture, our traditions. Uh, the caribou is is. You know, it's it's so significant to our mental health and well-being. It's, it was more than just an animal. It was, uh, you know, it provided food. It provided clothing. And so, it's it's if if people can have wild food now, a lot of times people just, you know, will have wild foods. But something that Chinupa uh, mentioned that I really love, um, <clears throat> and I appreciated him talking about it was. He made reference to the Inuit throat singing um, uh, that greeted in the new year. And I can't throat sing, but Jenny can. And I don't know if Jenny would be interested in doing a little demonstration so that people can actually. He he was right on in in, in the reference he made to the uh, throat uh, guttural sounds that that uh, he made. So I don't know, Jen, are you interested in... Jenny, nothing like getting thrown out there live on Native America Calling, throat singing. (laughs) Are you up for it? Yeah, I've been a throat singer for almost 20 years, so I do performances all around um, different places and have a throat singing group here in St. John's. And um, so normally you need two people to throat sing because it's a game. It's a competition between two people. There's a leader and a follower and there's sounds of nature and um, like the wind and the river. And there's also animal sounds. So um, I kind of need two people, but I mean, I can do a sound if you want. (laughs) It won't be the game, but I mean, I can just, I can demonstrate a sound. Yeah, please. I mean, we've got a, we're going to switch on to another guest here, but we've got about a minute. Yeah. Give us a demonstration, please. Okay, this one is um, a game. So um, it it takes like a regular voice and low. So it goes up, 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 up. That's a song, part of a song. But That's if awesome. you had two people, the other okay. person would made that sound, but at a different time. Okay. 
It sounds like that takes a yeah. lot of training, a lot of practice to get that down. That sounds like a really complex type of throat action that you're performing. Yes, it takes a lot of time to learn. And um, I teach other people here uh, in St. John's to teach workshops and go back to Labrador and teach sometimes too. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Sharon and Jenny, thank you both so much for coming on our show today and uh, sharing so much history, so much tradition, so much culture, and just really educating our listeners about uh, your communities there in Eastern Canada and the culture and some of the tradition that goes with it. So thank you again. And we're now going to travel west across the continent for another cultural event. There's been a very special sighting of a bird that has people in Anchorage, Alaska talking a rare white raven. Locals have documented sightings on social media. Not only is the bird a rare and interesting sight, it's also culturally significant. Let's talk to Mita DeWitt to learn more. Mita is an ethno-herbalist educator and a traditional healer. She's Lingit. Welcome, Mita, and thank you for joining us. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Good morning to you as well. And tell us more. When did this white raven appear in Anchorage? Yeah, and um, also in Shingut, uh, to say good morning is Yapke Tsupas. Um, I'm calling in from Denaina Eshmena, so the traditional Denaina lands in Anchorage, Alaska. And we have had the white raven come into our area, which is very exciting. Anchorage is considered the biggest native village in <laughs> the state. People lovingly call it Anchorage Mute. Um, but we have had a visitor, and it showed up in October. And we've actually been anticipating the white raven returning. And we have this anticipation because our elders have stories. And not just the Clinket elders, but also one of our beloved traditional healers, Dr. Rita Pika Blumenstein, she was Yupik, and her family comes from Tununik, and her elders also told her about the White Raven. So we have stories, like I said, all over the state. And Dr. Rita was a teacher of mine, and she would share that when White Raven returns, as her elders had told her, that we would be coming into the time of peace. And this is, there's a lot of um, associated details to this. One of it is the climate change that we're experiencing from an indigenous standpoint is an imbalanced relationship with nature, which reflects an imbalanced uh, culture or imbalanced internal uh, environment. And so the returning of the raven means that the people are going to be experiencing peace and working towards it. So it's a sign of hope, like we're going to make it. We're going to make it through climate change. We're going to make it as a society doing our, our internal spiritual transformation. Um, so it's really beautiful in that way. And then also for the Shinget people, where my family comes from, I'm Nanyai from Shtaking Kwan, we have stories. And it depends on which clan group you're a part of. It shifts a little bit. Um, but the we all agree that Raven used to be white and in his supernatural state as a supernatural being, he was all white, his, you know, beak and claws and feathers and everything. Um, and he turned black in my uncle's story. He was taking water from Heron. Then, you know, uncle Heron um, was the keeper of fresh water. And so he was doing fresh water for the people so that they could have fresh, clean water to drink. 
And another story that's really well known is the box of daylight. It's when Raven brought daylight to the people. And in both of these stories, he was bringing health and consciousness to humans. And it was stored in grandfather's house. And he was stealing the light or the water and then escaping through the smoke hole. But they didn't want him to take it. So he was inhibited um in one story that you know they grabbed him by the feet and he was struggling in the smoke hole and got covered in soot and the other story they started burning pitch um to make it so he couldn't find the smoke hole and flying around in the pitch smoke he turned black so in both stories you know he finally did escape and he brought you know these gifts to humanity and part of that concept is from us going from the kind of primal brain into human consciousness um, and Raven brought that that to us. Mita, this is all so exciting and I mean what's the buzz in and around Anchorage now? What are people saying? What are they doing? I mean you're describing a good omen here. Oh yeah I mean for us seeing the white raven is like a, a white buffalo you know down uh, in, in Chinupa's area right it has this powerful significance to us and really, the White Raven that we have, he is a local celebrity. People, you know, find him and take pictures, and there's whole Facebook pages and sightings. Um, people talk about him. Like, there's just a lot of excitement. And especially um, for the people who've heard the traditional stories, it's even an added level. So the White Raven here in Anchorage is really at celebrity status. It sounds like now is he appearing in certain parts of anchor? I mean, is there any way to kind of track him and and get a sight, or does he just randomly appear here and there? No, I mean it's more central uh, central Anchorage Midtown area, so over by um, the Spinard area, also over by New Sagaya. New Sagaya is a local city market, and they have really good good food, good seafood. So I'm not surprised that he's hanging out by New Sagaya. Uh, being Raven is very motivated by good food. Now, is there any idea where he came from? What, what part of Alaska or other area that he flew in from? Does anybody have any history there? No, not that I've heard of. Nobody tracked him to being in Anchorage, like he showed up in Anchorage. Now, I know I've seen on on you know, social media in the past, there was pictures of some white ravens in British Columbia. But from my understanding, I don't think that they might, they don't migrate in that way. Um, and so we don't know if this white raven was born here or came in, you know, from a, a surrounding area. But we feel that it's here to stay. You know, it didn't migrate. It, it now has is seen partnered with another raven. And so we anticipate that this white raven will stay with us, um, hopefully for the duration of its life. All right. Our producers are informing me that there is a Anchorage White Raven Spottings Facebook page that tracks the bird yes. every day. So for any of our listeners up there in the Anchorage area, you might want to check that out and, and keep tabs on, on White Raven. And Mita, are there any types of... Uh, cultural events or any ceremonies or rituals or anything that anybody's undertaking with the arrival of White Raven? 
Not in response to the White Raven. It was um, pretty wonderful, actually, because we had a event at the Alaska Native Heritage Center where in the healing garden, I actually work with them, and they're putting in a healing garden, and I, I work with them to put in the garden. But Emily uh, Tyrell Edenshaw, she commissioned a, a healing totem pole that re represents healing from the historical trauma of boarding schools. And the Young Brothers came in and, and carved this in Haida style. Um, it's a form line, which is shared between the EF, Clinket, Haida, and Simshian. Um, but they carved it to represent the children of our nation's healing from the trauma of boarding school. And we had a totem pole raising event. Um, we also had Deb Holland here. She started, she kicked off her road, you know, to healing where she goes and does listening sessions for truth and reconciliation. Um, she had that listening session here in Anchorage and White Raven came in and appeared within a week after we went through that ceremony and the totem pole raising. Um, so it's not necessarily, it's not, you know, causation, but there is a correlation into that we're focusing on healing as people. Um, and some folks think that the right white raven is specifically towards Alaska Native people, but my understanding is it's actually healing and peace is coming in for all people, um, regardless of ethnicity or race. And it came in after that ceremony, so it was very meaningful for a lot of our Indigenous populations here to see that sign and meaningful, again, for the people who worked with Dr. Rita Blumenstein and also know these traditional stories about white ravens. Mita, really appreciate you coming on the show today and sharing this interesting development there in Anchorage. And uh, if this is a good omen, if this is good news, I think we could all really benefit from that, especially now as we start the new year, 2024. And with that, I'm going to have to wrap up the show. We are out of time. But thank you again to Jenny Williams, Sharon Edmonds, and Mita DeWitt. Also, to our listener, Bertram, listening in Hopi, Arizona. I'm sorry, Bertram, we weren't able to get you on the show today, but please hang in there. We'll get you on another show. Also, join us again Monday. We'll begin our week with some profiles of young Native leaders making a difference in their communities. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. Our producers are Andy Murphy and Sol Traverso. Marino Spencer is the engineer. Show McPolin is the digital producer. Nola Daves-Moses is the distribution director. Bob Peterson is Network Manager for Native Voice One. Clifton Chadwick is our National Underwriting Sales Director. Antonia Gonzalez is the Anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather is our Chief Operations Officer. The President and CEO of Quantic Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. Have a safe, relaxing weekend. I'm Sean Spruce. Are you a Native American healthcare provider, recovery counselor, social worker, domestic and sexual abuse advocate, or traditional healer working in Native American communities? Dr. Ruby Gibson will begin an advanced immersion in healing historical trauma. This online masterclass in somatic archaeology uses the lens of a seven-generational recovery approach providing powerful modalities and is offered tuition-free to tribal members. Registration deadline is March 1st. Info at freedomlodge.org who support this show. My precious relatives, Happy New Year. Now is a great time to start new habits that will keep you healthy. Eating right, getting plenty of exercise, 
and enough sleep are key to a healthy lifestyle. Talk with your healthcare provider about changes you can make to let your new year be one of your best years. For more information, contact your local Indian healthcare provider or visit healthcare.gov. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.